0: Welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an Evergreen Podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean.
1: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Now, this week, I I think our listeners will know, both from the uh, episode title they clicked on to play this file, and if they're joining us again from last week, they'll know that we're doing the second part of our two-part series now on the murder of George Harry Stores.
1: And if you haven't heard part one, now's the time to go listen, because yep. you're going to need that context.
0: I think you will, because we ended up doing a more detailed account than I think I'd intended. I, I didn't know this was going to be a two-part episode, to be honest with you, but I looked up and realized it was break time, and and, and we were pretty deep and hadn't gotten to the crime yet. Yeah. Yeah. So um, here we are doing another week on George Harry Stores. and I, I keep
1: thinking George Harry
0: Styles. I keep thinking George Harry Staley because the town that this takes place in is Staley Bridge, mm. England. Which was a, it's a small town, but it was sort of an industrial center at this time. Mm-hmm. Big milling town, big indu- big aluminum town and aluminum.
1: Aluminium as they say.
0: And aluminium was where George Harry Stores had made his money largely. Mm-hmm. I mean like you know Carrie and like our listener knows he had investments kind of diversified all over the area but the mill in which he made his offices and that was the center of the family business was uh, was an aluminum mill. Um, now as you'll recall Carrie uh George Harry Stores was maybe the most important certainly the richest man in Staley Bridge he was apparently pretty well liked by his employees for the most part and his funeral was very well attended uh, the thursday after he pa- he was killed on a monday night hmm. the thursday he was buried on friday his loyal um coachman James Warrell committed suicide and that's no. where we left- You you remember this don't you
1: Oh, yeah, he hung himself.
0: Worrell hung himself in the barn.
1: It, it's it's shocking to me every time.
0: That's So that, so that's where we've gotten to. But George Harry Stores was stabbed in his kitchen by a man who had rushed in when the whole family was at home. George Harry's wife, Maggie, her niece, Marion, who lived with them, as well as the housekeeper and the cook had all seen uh, the assailant's face.
1: It's very much a clue game.
0: And at the end of the episode, I hinted that there would be two trials before this was finally laid to rest and that n- no one would be convicted for the murder of George Harry Stores. I'm exhausted already. Um, so, Carrie, what do you remember about the crime itself?
1: Well, apparently I didn't remember the suicide at the end. <laughs> um, okay, so first George and his family are hanging out one night and then someone breaks a window with a gun and then shoots the gun not into the house but just like around the house and so George and the family are freaked out nothing happens to them that night but they install a giant bell in the house because there's no like real telephone yet and so they ring. They decide to ring the bell when they need the police if something happens again.
0: And then he tests out the bell like a week he later. He
1: tests out the bell and the police come and everything, but it's just a test. So it's very much Boy Who Cried Wolf. And then um, on the night that everyone's out of town voting, someone breaks, well, not really breaks and maybe it was already open, but comes in from the back.
0: Yeah, because the cook came in and saw this guy yes. squatting near the back door.
1: And then she's running out, and then George and this unknown assailant have a tussle. George's wife runs to the bell to start ringing the bell. Everyone else runs out of the house, and we don't really know what happens after that, except, you know, like when the police come back, Mrs. Uh, Stores is still ringing that bell, and um, they find George is dying of stab wounds.
0: Many, like 16 at least stab wounds.
1: And the assailant is gone. And uh, we don't know who the assailant was. We don't know the motive. And so we're just starting to try and figure things out. And also the footman, who was a a close friend of George's, felt really guilty.
0: He had been at the pub when this was going on.
1: Right. Um, And so he uh, apparently commits suicide, which is very sad.
0: That does pretty much bring it up and to that's speed. That's
1: what you missed, on Glee.
0: uh Carrie, you had questioned the police assumption that George had George Harry had pushed the assailant into the scullery. Yes. And then the assailant had broken the window, um, and you were like, "Well, why did they think someone broke the window to get out?" Uh, I looked into that again. The reason is the broken glass was on the outside of the window, mm-hmm. and there was blood, like bloody kind of hand streaks, both inside and outside the scullery door. Okay. So someone seems to have been inside the scullery after they were injured. Gotcha. Um, But like I said, two men will be tried for this crime and no one will be convicted. And the first man we're going to talk about is none other than Cornelius Corny Howard. Corny. Yeah, Corny is what his friends called him uh, when he had friends. (laughs) Oh boy. Cornelius Howard was born October eleventh, eighteen seventy-eight, in Southport, not Fairfield, England, um, to <laughs> to a butcher and his wife. Um, they won't feature very much in the story, so their names aren't important. But the wife of that butcher also happened to be the younger sister of William Stores, who was the father of George Harry Stores.
1: Okay, so George's aunt is yes. this guy's
0: mom. Yep, and that makes he and George cousins. second cousins. Okay. So, after school, Corney worked in the butcher shop that his father owned until his mother's death in 1898, um, and then set off to seek his fortune. Seeking your fortune means different things to different people, and for Cornelius Howard, that meant that the following year he was arrested for burglary and larceny.
1: Well, he was seeking it.
0: <laughs> out on the Isle of Man, and he was sent to prison for four months. Which I I believe at this time there wasn't that much to steal on the Isle of Man. So I don't know if he was just unlawfully shearing a sheep or something. <laughs> um, anyway, he gets out of prison. In the following month, he's immediately arrested again for burglary. Uh, and this time given twice the sentence.
1: Was this on the Isle of Woman? <laughs>
0: uh, I don't, I, I'm not sure where it was, but it wasn't the Isle of Man again. Okay. But this time Cornelius cut a deal. Instead of going to prison, he was allowed to join the army as a cook. He had learned the skill of making delicious meat pies from his father, the butcher, and uh, he plied that skill in the army um, and apparently was very, very good at it.
1: You don't even have to fight. I mean, I would definitely take that.
0: So that that doesn't mean you're not in dangerous areas, but yeah, you don't have to fight. You're just cooking. Uh, So despite a less than spotless, as you might imagine, disciplinary record, uh, over Eight years of his military career, Cornelius advanced to battery pay sergeant um, because while he was stationed in India, someone noticed like, oh, this bloke can do maths. <laughs> and so they let him do the payroll for the uh, the, the whole battalion. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, he left the service after his father died in April 1909, which suggests to me like, I guess I don't have to be respectable anymore. Dad's dead. Mm. Um, so Corny moved to Staley Bridge. The place where George Harry Stores was living with his family and working, mm-hmm. um, but he didn't find a job there. And a few months later, he moved to Sheffield. And six days after moving into town, he was arrested <sighs> trying to burglarize an ironmonger. This time,
1: not in the town you live in.
0: Yeah. Now we're in. You don't shit where you eat. We're in 1909, so this is the year when George, when our murder happens. Right. Um. And Cornelius was in custody in nearby Wakefield from July 12th to October 7th, 1909, under the name William Harrison, uh, before he was finally tried in Sheffield on the burglary charges and discharged, again, under that fake name. Uh, And then six days after that, he was once again in custody, still in Sheffield, this time for shoplifting. Uh, This time he gave his real name. Uh, But he was tried and discharged with no conditions. Just like, all right, you're free to go. You did do it. Don't do it again. Sick of your face. Um, And in fact, apparently on Cornelius's way out of the courthouse, after the judge was like, you're free to go again, a few local cops were waiting on the steps of the courthouse to hint that he might want to try his luck somewhere else. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he did. And that's why after his second cousin turned up murdered, the police knew this guy was around somewhere, but they had no idea where he might be.
1: Now, would George have recognized him? Because George was like alive for a while
0: afterward. He could have just said, it was my cousin. That's a great question, and I think you'll find it's an open one. Mm -hmm. Um, My best knowledge of the facts is that these two had known each other when they were young, were never close, the branches of their family were never particularly close, but they were aware of each other and um, grew apart more after the death of Cornelius' mother. He, like, never saw his mother's family. Gotcha. So when investigators heard about Cornelius Howard, they knew. Here's a guy with a criminal background he fit the physical description given by the women of the house of the murderer, which, if you'll remember, he was pretty short, like five foot four to five foot six. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had uh, light-colored hair and a little wispy, thin mustache, and he was slightly built. Mm -hmm. And Cornelius looked kind of like this. Sometimes he had a mustache, sometimes he didn't, but he had light hair. He was a, a small guy. He had been in Staley Bridge recently. He's connected to the family. Um... But Maggie and Marion both said that they had no recollection of ever meeting him or hearing his name.
1: Okay, why? Why does that matter?
0: Well, it's just you're going to ask the, fa- the the family, "Have you heard of this guy?" So, oh, sure. Just so you know, they hadn't heard of him. Okay. Um, but he was in town, and it's also weird then that he didn't look up his cousin, his rich cousin, when he was looking for work. Mm-hmm. At least that's what police thought. And so wanted posters were distributed for Cornelius Howard in Staley Bridge and nearby Cheshire and Dukinfield. your favorite The town Duke. Um, the big Duke. And that leads us to Wednesday, November 17th, 1909, when Cornelius was arrested by an Oldham Borough constable Who just found him to be a suspicious person. (laughs) I can't tell you why he found him suspicious. I mean,
1: that's how a lot of serial killers are found. They're like pulled over because, you know, they have a headlight out or they're driving a little wonky. They're just a little suspicious.
0: Yeah. Well, in this case, the officer passed a low wall. It was a snowy day and he passed a low wall and saw a man crouched in the snow behind the little wall. It's shady. And he asked the man's name and he said, me. I'm uh, John Ward from Huddersfell. Oh, I'm Crouchy Johnson, and I love to crouch. And that lie lasted uh, basically no time at all, because they got to the police station, and the desk sergeant asked the man's name, and he immediately said, Oh, Cornelius Howard, I'm a pork butcher.
1: Old corny.
0: The name rang some bells at the station, and um, after a few quick, you know, kind of probably after looking in his notebook... The sergeant told Corny he was wanted in connection with the murder of George Harry Stores, his cousin. Mm-hmm. And Cornelia said, oh, I know that. I've seen it in the papers. <laughs> Great. And so the constables searched Corny. And on his person, they found a pair of socks in his jacket pocket that were covered in blood uh three sentimental item perhaps good question he said when the police found that he was like oh i can uh i've got the name of the guy who sold me those i could i can introduce you to him
1: you know what i don't think we want to meet your your bloody sock procurer yeah we're good dude
0: <laughs> um he had three pen knives in his pockets like wolverine as well as a table knife, like a butter knife, but it had been ground down, police said, to be sharper. So he had like, like a, a shank, like a prison shiv, and three pen knives. Okay. He also had over a pound and a half of pipe tobacco in five different brands.
1: Just carrying a pound. How addicted to tobacco are you?
0: Well, as police were looking at all this stuff, Corny told them um, unprompted that he had stolen the tobacco from a shop in Oldham two nights before.
1: Okay. Well, what a strange person.
0: Yeah. So, this obviously criminal individual was taken to a cell and stripped. Police found that he had blood on the outside of his jacket, and even more on the inside of his jacket, as well as splashes of blood on his trousers and his boots. Um, As he stripped down, they saw more blood on his left leg, just below his knee.
1: He hasn't taken a shower?
0: Well, there were several... It's been
1: a couple weeks.
0: Yeah, there were several bloody lacerations that appeared to police to be about two to three weeks old. Oh, brother. And Corny's explanation for that was he, he said that had happened when glass fell on him. He was staying at uh, Joyce's Lodging House. He gave the name of the place <laughs> on November 10th, and his landlord... Joyce was his last name. It was like Michael Joyce or something. Uh, The landlord was putting in windows and dropped a pane of glass, and it, oh wouldn't you know it, it cut up Corny's leg. Mm, That's what happens in that movie Ghost. Yes, you're right, except it kills the guy. And then the shadows come. So so that's what happened to Corny, except just his leg. Okay. Um, Later on, wrapped in a blanket, he would tell the police he'd been staying at, oh, here it is, it's Thomas Joyce's Lodging House in Huddersfield, from October 31st until November 11th, when he had finally come back to Oldham. Mm -hmm. Uh, The police would interview him many times over the next couple of months, and in further interviews, he would stick to those basic facts, but he also spontaneously confessed to stealing a pound of coins from a drapery shop on October 30th, and then the following night, stealing some stamps and the coat and muffler that he was wearing when he was arrested and he now said that that was where he had really cut his leg was breaking the window of the store.
1: Okay. Now, did they bring in the the cook or the maid or any of the other people to, like, look at this guy? Because, I mean, they probably got a decent look at him.
0: Caroline, wouldn't you know it, the next thing the police did, they couldn't organize it until November 18th, but they did organize a suspect lineup. All right. Um, and they brought in... Maggie Stores, Marion Lindley, Mary Evans, the cook, and Eliza Cooper, the young maid.
1: Now we're cooking.
0: Um, and so there were like eight guys standing there. One of them was Cornelius Howard. Uh, Mrs. Stores was first. One of
1: them's a clown for some reason. One of them's a little person. The same thing in, in every lineup in every movie.
0: Mrs. Storrs was the first and she kind of walked up and down the line uncertainly and then picked someone who was not Cornelius Howard and said, that's the most like the man who did it. Hmm. But when Marion Lindley walked into the room, she pointed quote, almost at once to Cornelius Howard and said, that is the man. Okay. Mary Evans the cook walked the line back and forth once and then said Howard was most like the murderer but she couldn't be sure. Eliza Cooper entered the room and pointed at Howard with no hesitation, just like Marion did, but her language was a little softer. She said, that is most like the man. Okay. Uh, Meanwhile, an Oldham boarding house operator who they brought in, um, because she had answered some police questions earlier, um, identified Cornelius as, quote, very much like a man who had stayed at her place in Staleybridge Bridge the night of the murder. Okay. After everyone else except for Cornelius had gone, the chief inspector intoned, Cornelius Howard, I charge you that you did on the first day of November 1909 feloniously, willfully, and of malice aforethought, kill and murder one George Harry Stores against the peace of our Lord King.
1: Damn.
0: There was a long, awkward silence while they waited for Corny's response, and he's recorded as finally saying, I have nothing to say now.
1: Great. Thanks, Corny. Thanks for that.
0: <laughs> so, Cornelius Howard's trial began in March 1910, and by this time, Cornelius had established an alibi with police. He said that, oh, I remember. You know what? I wasn't at the boarding house all night. Every I wasn't there all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Come on. And the night of the murder, you know what? I was at this bar called the Ringo Bells. Mm. And I was playing dominoes. And I was playing dominoes with like four Navy guys and the owner of the bar. So w- we can line this up. And in court, the landlord of the Ringo Bells said he remembered Cornelius playing dominoes with a bunch of uh, local military guys. And he was sure it was on election night.
1: I mean. I could buy that. That's something you'd remember.
0: Now, in the inquest, the same man had wavered and said he was definitely there election night or the day after. Oy. It was either election night or it was the second. So it, it either was or it wasn't. Thank you so much. And then the prosecution called a witness who was this watchmaker who was a regular at the Ringo bells <laughs> And he said he didn't recognize Corny, but... But he did remember that Domino's game with the <laughs> military guys and because of some snippets of conversation that were mentioned and he was sure it was November 2nd, not election night, not election night. But that guy showed up in court literally too drunk to find the witness box. Like, Well, he, had, he is a regular. He had to be pointed in the direction of the witness box. Oh, no. And then in cross-examination, he told the court he averaged 15 to 16 pints of beer a day. So, his and one watch. so his testimony was considered maybe a little less reliable. That's So much beer. It is every day. It's a lot.. Oy. The ladies of the house were called one by one, you know, Maggie, Marion, Mary, okay. Eliza, <laughs> the rest. <laughs> um, and they all testified that Howard was the man. only he must have shaved his mustache off. okay. Um, The defense, as you might expect, made much of Mrs. Storr's original false ID, although in court she said she was sure now that Howard was the man.
1: Mm, And what had changed?
0: Everyone told her, this is the only way to get justice for your husband's murder. Okay. Um, Meanwhile, Alice Doolin, that boarding house operator from Oldham, came to say that Howard had stayed with her, but she was a really bad witness uh because it feels like she had told the prosecutors like oh that's the man it's exactly like the man and they were like is the man and she was like sure Uh, but then in court she was like "Mm, i don't know he does look an awful lot like him i can't swear that it's him Mm -hmm. um so it was looking pretty good for the defense actually as the crown case rested Mm -hmm. and then the defense took over and they skipped opening statements to do what you're never supposed to do in a court of law and call their client (sighs) directly to the stand.
1: The, The least believable person ever.
0: The first thing done in this case was to call Corny Howard directly to the witness stand.
1: Just a compulsive liar. That'll do it.
0: In Corny's testimony, they established that he had lied about the leg cuts originally because he didn't want to get in trouble for doing another breaking and entering.
1: Yeah, and then he mentioned like five other ones. So it, it all adds up to less than death row.
0: And Howard also explained that he had originally forgotten his long trip to the Ringo Bells on the first until after the initial questioning. And you know what? Since he had rem- remembered that, he had also remembered he was in the Prime Hotel in Huddersfield for half an hour around 8 o'clock before he went to the bar. Okay. Just to account for that time too.
1: <laughs> Very specific to suddenly remember.
0: Yeah. Um, so in cross examination, the prosecutors came up and asked if Cor- asked how well Cornelius knew his cousin. This is what you were asking I mean He had, had he looked him up while he was in Staleybridge, and Cornelius's story was that he saw George Harry twice while he was living in Staleybridge, and the first time he saw him on the street recognized his cousin and gave him a nod, like just inclined his head like a hey. And he said he was sure George Harry had seen him, but he didn't return the nod. He just looked away and and walked away. And Cornelia said in court, so I assumed he didn't remember me.
1: Mm. Or he did, and that's why he didn't want to interact.
0: Right. Uh, So the prosecutor prodded that, kind of looking for an angle. He did a lot of like, and you didn't think to ask this man for a job? This is a well off man, and you're a man in need. Um, but Cornelius just said that they were always cordial when they were children, but not close. They didn't, like, play together. And uh, after his mother died, he had not seen much of that whole side of the family. Hmm. So he thought George just probably didn't recognize him. I think it's likely George recognized him, but you couldn't blame George for maybe going the other way. Yeah. The prosecutor asked why Cornelius didn't go to the police if he knew from seeing it in the papers that he was wanted in connection with a murder.
1: Well, I mean, most people aren't going to do that.
0: Well, he said, oh, I didn't take very much notice of it. to (laughs) tell the truth, I thought it was a very foolish notion of the police. Hmm. Okay. Um, Meanwhile. (laughs) It's a bold move. Let's see how it pays off. In case you're wondering why Cornelius had claimed to remember some other facts about the night of the murder. Um, two guys were paraded out to testify that they had seen him at the Prime Hotel from seven forty to a little after eight pm. <laughs>
1: uh huh.
0: And then a guy named William Marmaduke Thompson testified. Marmaduke. Yep. William Marmaduke Thompson. Now he had been uh, definitely didn't have that accent. He had been working the polls that night. He was a poll work volunteer.
1: P o l l.
0: P o l l. Yes, he wasn't a stripper, um, but he was also a degenerate gambler and uh drunk it sounds like at least based on the uh
1: it sounds like most of the people in this orbit well
0: that's certainly what the character witnesses to mr thompson said mm. uh, anyway thompson whether we can trust him or not said that he saw cornelius howard in huddersfield around eight thirty, nearby the prime hotel and they had talked about a wager that he owed howard for And he added on the stand that Howard was always clean-shaven, never kept a mustache. In cross-examination, the uh, prosecutor very cleverly pointed out that, uh, tried to imply at least, that Thompson had arranged the other two guys from the Prime Hotel, asking Mm. if he had talked to those men before. Oh. And uh, Thompson said that he had, but only to verify they had seen Cornelius, and they had described Cornelius to him. Okay. And then there was nothing left but closing arguments, where the defense, of course, focused on the earlier gun through the window incident, which Howard was in jail when it happened. Right. And the shaky uh, eyewitness testimony and the evidence to Howard's alibi. Well, the prosecution emphasized the eyewitness evidence and cast shade on (laughs) the alibi, which they said was a little too conveniently arranged mm-hmm. uh, and to quote the prosecution, the prosecutor's closing argument, those who practice in courts know that the simplest way and the cleverest way is not to invent false facts, which are apt to fall to pieces in cross-examination, but to take real facts and transpose the day.
1: So no more fake news.
0: No more fake news. This is what they're rallying and mm-hmm. railing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 minutes later, by the way, that Lock him up. I don't know how that applies to this exactly, though, because Howard's alibi involved election night stuff, so it could only have happened. It's not like those events could have happened the next night. Yes. Anyway, 20 minutes later, the jury returned a not guilty verdict. Just 20 minutes.
1: I mean, it's reasonable doubt. I mean, I, I assume it's vaguely like that in England, but reasonable doubt. There's too much of it. There's too much reasonable doubt to send a guy away for murder.
0: So you vote innocent on this jury?
1: I would vote innocent. I don't know if I would necessarily believe. I mean, he's not a good guy, right? But um, We don't know that. We know he's a criminal. There's just too much doubt. There's there's not enough hard evidence to link him. So I wouldn't be able to, especially, you know, like life in prison or whatever it would have been. Uh, It's just, it's too heavy too heavy a sentence to take lightly.
0: Now Carrie, you'll remember the press was already using the murder the murder of George Harry Stores as a springboard to criticize the whole uh, British police institution. Of course. And the night of the verdict, <coughs> the Manchester Evening News had it that the murder of Mr. Stores is as mysterious a tragedy today as it was when the horrible story was first told. There is next to nothing in the facts for the police to work upon and they have to admit themselves baffled.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: True. <laughs> it was in spring the following year that Maggie <laughs> what?
1: So it was just a very like Keith Morrison. It was in spring the following year.
0: Leaning into frame. Mm-hmm. Um we'll, well more on that later. You'll see. Okay. It was in spring of 1910 that Maggie that Maggie Storrs, Mary and Lindley, and the remaining staff, Mary and Eliza and Mrs. Worrell, all moved to a new house called Fairhaven.
1: Yeah, fresh start for the best.
0: Yeah, and in fact, that summer, Gorse Hall would be demolished. Uh, first, the furniture was all taken to the new home for the most part, and then, I kind of like this, The townspeople of Staleybridge were invited to just come and take whatever they wanted, so everybody sort of looted the house before the demolition started.
1: That's pretty chill.
0: Even like the brass doorknobs had been pride-free to be melted down.
1: They seem like a pretty nice family for being the Richies in town. And uh, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get some sordid details about George, but I'm still lost on the motive.
0: Well, uh, so were police, and I think it shows, and uh, certainly we'll be talking more about it. After the structure was demolished, the stone, timber, and lead from the ruin were all carted to the aqueduct mill to be repurposed by the company George Harry had loved and devoted himself to in life. And the months were slipping away, but the second major suspect in the George Harry Stores case still wasn't even on police's radar, at least until he may or may not have had an encounter with a young couple on a dark road in June of 1910. And we'll get to that right after the break.
1: Is it the man with a hook for a hand? Hey, Scary Squad, Carrie here. As I've gotten older and my responsibilities have increased, I've struggled with issues relating to brain fog, concentration and focus, and most of all for me, fatigue and energy. Launching a new episode of the podcast every week with these problems isn't easy, so when Magic Mind reached out to us with their matcha-based energy shots, I figured, why not give it, well, a shot? Magic Mind is packed with nootropics, which are natural and synthetic supplements to help with cognitive function and all those unpleasant things I mentioned before. You just drink one of the energy shots along with your morning caffeine and boom, natural energy with no crash, thanks to ingredients like matcha and ashwagandha. Now, I will say I'm not a matcha girly myself, so the taste isn't my absolute favorite, but I like mixing it into seltzer for a refreshing little spritzer. And if you struggle with the same sorts of issues I do, and I know a lot of you do, I definitely recommend trying Magic Mind, and you can go check them out at magicmind.co slash scary. That's magicmind.co slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. You can even use our discount code SCARYSC2020 to get up to 56% off your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. Use the code within the first 10 days of this episode dropping to get the most bang for your buck. Again, that code is SCARYSC2020. And thanks to Magic Mind for the brain boost. (laughs)
0: Welcome back. When last we left you, we had completed, introduced and completed the trial of Cornelius Howard, the first major suspect in the murder of George Harry Storrs. Um Carrie, what do you think of Cornelius? I know you said you would have uh, voted not guilty on that jury. Um,
1: Certainly a shady character, but yeah, I wouldn't have been able to vote him guilty because there was just too much doubt and not enough evidence.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, as I hinted, the next suspect was just around the corner, and he would become known to police after two young lovers made a frightening report. Mm. On June 10th, 1910, James Bolton and Gertrude Booth were walking up Huff Hill together near Gorse Hall, which hadn't been demolished yet.
1: Mm -hmm. And what were they doing on the hill?
0: Well, it said they sat down in a shady spot to rest, but it was at mm-hmm. night, so I, th- I think it's safe to assume they were necking. Oh, absolutely. A shady
1: spot at night? What are they hiding from? The moon?
0: And anyway, as they were walking home, they encountered a pale man in the street with corn-colored hair. Corny. In a dark suit, a cap, and a muffler. Mm-hmm. Gertrude leaned over to Mark and said, oh, I don't like the look of him. <laughs> but the man stuffed his hands in his pockets And passed them on by Before turning in his tracks To accost the couple Sprinting at them after he had <laughs> passed And yelling, I'll cut your fucking throats
1: That's scary That's also just like a normal Night in New York City But it's also it scary It is not
0: <laughs> just don't, don't, don't do that to New York We love New York <laughs> I have I'm a from t-shirt.
1: New York, it's fine
0: whoever the stranger was held a knife to James's throat and James felt the blades cut into his skin and yelled for God's sake, run Gertie. Wow. Pushing his girlfriend away as he turned to grab at the knife and wrestle the attacker to the ground. The two of them struggled on the ground as the man continued to yell at James. I'll cut your belly out. I'm going to cut your bloody head off. Yikes. James yelled for Gertie to run for help. She turned, sprinted, and immediately tripped and fell on her face in the dirt road. Oh,
1: Gertie. That's, <clears throat> sorry, it's a funny image, but
0: it's scary. I'm I'm scared for them. Luckily, James managed to pry the knife away and get the better of his attacker. The man looked toward the, tr- the tree line off to the left and yelled, Come on, Jack! We've got him! which was probably just a trick, but James wasn't going to take any chances with that, and he was grabbing his girlfriend and getting TFO. Now, when police were uh, taking the complaint from the young couple, they quickly made the connection to the Gorse Hall murder because of the location and the description of the attacker with his light-colored hair and the knife. Mm -hmm. Now, a knife is a very common weapon (laughs) in, like, attacks in general. Certainly, yeah. But, you know, the police are going to go, like, light-colored hair with a knife. Well, they're desperate.
1: They're trying to put something together.
0: So, with a little more canvassing in the area, Early Bank Road was the street the young couple had been walking on, and a Staley Bridge machine fitter named Harry Mills said he and his wife were walking home on Early Bank Road the same night that the couple was attacked and saw a fair young man staring at them from the shadows. So he was just lurking on that street the whole night? Until this... Until Harry and his wife saw him and then he walked into the street, slowly walked toward them and passed, not saying anything until they greeted him and then he returned their greeting. Hmm. Mills said he noticed or thought he noticed something shiny up the man's sleeve and he and his wife walked faster home. But the best witness was a young Miller named George Hayes. And he told police he was in Early Bank Road. Hey, did you see anyone suspicious in Early Bank Road? And he said, well, that night, yeah, I was in Early Bank Road around 20 of 11, he said. And I bumped into this old friend of mine, Mark Wild. And um, it was kind of weird because Mark had these dark marks on his face and uh, dirty clothes. And um, so I asked him if he'd been in a scrap. <laughs> oh, oh, there he is. But Mark told the friend, told Hayes that he had just been out for a stroll. When asked for this Mark Wilde's description, Hayes said he was fair haired, pale, around five foot four, 28 years old, and, quote, briefly mustached. Ugh. <laughs> it just sounds gross. So, what a gross way to say that. It, dirt lip.
1: Ugh. Just say dirt lip. I'm just having flashbacks of the eighth
0: grade. So, who was Mark Wilde? Well, he lived with his parents right next to the Aqueduct Mill, which, as you'll recall, was where George Harry Storrs worked and in walking distance of Gorse Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Wilde did graduate, but a couple of jobs after school didn't last very long. And he ended up enlisting in the Army from 1901 to 1909. Eight year military career, actually very similar background to Corney. Yeah. Now, in January 1909, Mark returned to Staleybridge, Bridge, and his dad got him a job, it sounds like somewhat reluctantly, at the railway station. There's only one railroad station in town, as you will recall, and Mark had apparently left that job on September 10th, 1909. That's another thing that pricked police's ears up, because that's the same night the pistol broke through the window at Gorse Hall.
1: What a celebration to, to leave a job and then break someone's window with a pistol.
0: Well, he didn't say that he voluntarily left the job. <laughs> when police arrived to question Mark, he was wearing the same clothes. He confirmed to their verbal question that he was wearing the same clothes he was the day of the murder of George Harry Stores.
1: How would he even know that unless he just
0: has one set of clothes? I think truly he doesn't have very many clothes. It's a very poor family. Okay. He had blood on his jacket. He said, "Oh yeah, that was from November first. I uh, I got into a fight." Okay, that was voting night. Well, Carrie, what is it time for now? To be
1: arrested?
0: And no, we think we have a suspect.
1: Oh, bring in the people to see if it's him. Time for another lineup. Mm-hmm.
0: And um,
1: now we got to get a really, really tall, skinny guy and a really, really short chubby guy. That's
0: right. That's right. The
1: whole usual suspects.
0: So James Bolton, the uh, young man who was assaulted in uh, early bank road, immediately picked Wilde out of the lineup and said, that's the guy who held the knife to my throat. I was wrestling him for a knife. I remember him. Mm -hmm. Um, Gertrude Booth, his girlfriend was close to fainting as she picked Wilde out as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Harry Mills, the guy who said he had seen the creep uh, in the road with his wife, walked the line twice before finally pointing to Mark Wilde and saying, that's the most likely man. So pretty good. Mm -hmm. So here's what Wilde said about the night of September 10th.
1: And that's the gun in the window night. Yes. Okay.
0: Um, Remember, he had apparently lost his job that day. Mark said that he went to the pub around six. He was home for dinner at eight. He was due for work at the train station around nine o'clock, but then he had a fight with his dad. He told his mom he wasn't going to work. he went back to the he went back to the pub until 11:30. and then a boarding house called Mrs. Mason's until 10 the next morning.
1: God, I couldn't even tell you what I did last night.
0: Right, and this is... Uh... it's
1: just so specific. That's the thing that gets me.
0: Well, and it's like six, seven months before.
1: That's the thing that like gets me about like any witness statements, especially because I'm always like, if I hear a strange thump or like a shout or whatever, I'm like, ooh, what's happening? Maybe I should, you know, note the time or whatever in case some crime is happening nearby. But like, I don't know how people just are like, oh yeah, I did this and that, and then I ate this. Like, I couldn't. When the people show even up- a week ago, I have no, I have no sense of. I could vaguely say, I worked and then I did, I I had dinner and then I went to bed at some
0: point. How how could you go? Yeah, I saw Cornelius at that hotel from seven forty to about eight ten.
1: I couldn't do that for last night. I couldn't tell you a specific twenty minutes of last night. I don't know how. I mean, maybe people just had less going on, less distractions. Uh, but man. I don't know how people do it.
0: Now, the night, of de- the night of November 1st, the night of the murder, Wilde said he was planning on going to a concert at the Hippodrome in Ashton, um, but he got distracted on the way and ended up just going bar hopping in Ashton instead. <laughs> at one of the bars, a guy shoved him, so he got into a fight. And then after the fight, which he said he won, but got bloodied up in, he was on his way to get a drink at the Victoria Hotel but he ran into a cousin who told him about the murder at Gorse Hall. Okay. And then Mark said he went home. Once he got home, he said his mother asked him about the blood on him and he told her about the fight, and then somebody came in and told them about stores murder again. Mhm. And Mark said a few weeks after that, "Oh, I
1: feel like back in the day there was
0: a lot of running
1: into rooms announcing murders, oh, you, you know."
0: It's, you hear about the store's house? That's <laughs> the
1: latest news.
0: No, I'm sure that's true. Um now, Wilde also said that he had possessed two revolvers, but he didn't have them anymore. He had gotten rid of them in early November.
1: I call this one Smoky, and this one the Bandit.
0: And he said getting rid of the revol- revolvers had nothing to do with the store's murder. He didn't think that he would be accidentally suspected of that or anything like that. It, his mother just didn't like him having them around, and she finally convinced him to get rid of them in November.
1: Well, if she could testify to that.
0: Uh. Um, but he was happy to... He said he was happy to show the police where he hid all of the pieces of the revolvers.
1: Why not sell them? If he's, if he, if he's a poor guy...
0: That's a good ...has question. one
1: set of clothes, maybe selling two revolvers, you could buy another set of clothes.
0: Here's the thing. I can think of exactly one good reason to break a revolver into many pieces and hide them places.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe two. Maybe the revolver cucked you or something. <laughs>
0: had an affair with your wife. Yeah, I was thinking more that it was a murder weapon, but uh, yeah, maybe. Oh, well, that's the second. Just <laughs> stupid revolver. You'll see what I'll show you. <laughs> a wild would eventually take police out to show them where he supposedly tossed the pieces of the revolver, but several search teams never found a single piece. Interesting. A little bit like all those Henry Lee Lucas like murder sites. Mm-hmm.
1: Just wanted to get a burger that day. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so it was that the trial of Mark Wilde, the first one, the one for the attack on James and Gertrude, began Tuesday, um, July 12th.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a few irons in the fire here.
0: Now, Mark Wilde somehow found himself at this trial on the trial day with no representation. <sighs> and so after meekly entering a not guilty plea himself, he asked the judge if he could please have a lawyer. And the judge took a lot, of, a lot of time. He really hemmed and hawed about procedure. Market was supposed to ask for a representation at an earlier, yeah. uh, an, uh, earlier point, an earlier and the judge wasn't sure if the court was really even required to provide it anymore, but he grudgingly tasked – it sounds like just a bewildered defense lawyer who happened to be there <laughs> with no preparation to just take this case on. Well, it's better than nothing, I suppose. Well, the facts seem like they were pretty straightforward in this one anyway, And um, there was almost no deliberation before the jury returned a guilty verdict for the assault.
1: I mean, it seems pretty likely he committed this, at least. The guy was tussling with him in his face.
0: Yeah, exactly. And everyone involved positively identified him in that um, lineup. Mm -hmm. Um, Mark was only assigned two months of hard labor, which might seem low for what ostensibly... Oh, I'm sure hard labor sucked. Yeah, but it's at least assault with a deadly...
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Um, if not attempted murder, if not attempted sexual assault, depending, you know, whatever you want to throw at him. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if this seems like a light sentence, that's because it was arranged with the investigators on the Gorse Hall murder, specifically to keep Mark Wilde in one place, but close by for all the time they would need to investigate. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want him waiting through long sentencing. They were just like, get him in jail so we know where he is. We're going to put him away for longer anyway. If you say so. Police then set about interviewing Wilde's old military comrades. And they found one soldier, Frank Fowles, who said more than half the army men he knew overseas carried revolvers. And almost all of those had six chambers, not five. And only one of them had a little ring hanging from the base of the handle. Now, you remember the revolver... uh, the killer brought to the house that Maggie had stuffed under the rug when she ran up to ring mm-hmm. the bell. And the police have that now. Remember, it says American Bullock on the um, revolver, but the gunsmith said it was probably from Belgium. Mm-hmm. Five chamber revolver with a little ring hanging from the grip.
1: Mm. Like a little phone charm.
0: Exactly. Or to put a keychain on. Mm hmm. And so this Frank Fowles said he had only seen one serviceman with a five-chamber revolver with a little ring hanging from the base, and that was Mark Wild. And before this guy was shown a gun, he said he remembered that it had American Bullock stamped over the cylinder Damn. and scratches on the barrel.
1: I'm just not that observant, I guess.
0: He also said the gun Mark had was defective wooden fire. Now, another vet who left the army around the same time as Wilde and was stationed with him in Jamaica also positively identified. Now, he was shown like three different guns and identified the American Bullock as Wilde's Mm -hmm. in a lineup of four. And then still another serviceman specifically remembered talking with Wilde about how the gun was inoperable. And also identified it out of a lineup almost immediately.
1: I couldn't identify any of my friends' cars well, unless this,
0: they had like bumper stickers on them. But this is military guys talking about guns, so it's more like
1: just—it's crazy to me. I, I hmm.
0: Mark Wilde was looking like a more and more likely suspect in the Gorse Hall murder. So, Carrie, what's that? What's the step in this investigation we keep coming back to?
1: Well, uh, the the women of of Fairhaven must come in and identify him now.
0: It's time for another suspect lineup, Carrie. Mm-hmm. And the ladies of Fairhaven, formerly of Gorse Hall, were brought in to to identify Mark Wilde at Nutsford Jail.
1: Nutsford?
0: Yeah, and I stuttered on the word jail there because it's spelled the Engli- the old, old-timey English way. Yeah, it's Nutsford Gale.
1: Nutsford...
0: This time, Mary Evans, the cook, watch- walked straight up to Mark Wilde and touched his shoulder. Ooh. Now, the police give instructions at the beginning of these, and they tell you to stay behind a line. Yeah. They don't want you getting close to murder suspects. No touchy. And Mary Evans ignored this instruction and walked straight up to Wilde and touched him on the shoulder. When she returned to police, she said she was sure the man she had selected was the murderer. It's ballsy. Maggie Stores. George's wife had to be helped into the room. Hmm. She had only managed to give the line a glance before returning her eyes to the ground. Police asked if she recognized anyone. She could only manage to shake her head before she was helped back into the adjacent room and into a chair.
1: <sighs> this poor traumatized woman.
0: Here you are trying to identify your husband's murderer a second.
1: Again. Yeah. After going through the hell of a trial. Ugh.
0: Her niece, Marion Lindley, walked the line all the way, back part of the way, and also touched Wilde on the shoulder. And she turned to police and said, this man resembles the one who did it.
1: Hmm. But he doesn't have chocolate milk mustache.
0: (laughs) Um, Eliza Cooper made a beeline straight to Wilde, touched him right in the middle of the chest. Why do they keep touching these guys? And then scurried away. Okay, that's weird. And uh, later to police, she said uh, that man is more like the man I saw at Gorse Hall than was Cornelius Howard. Oh, oh, but you were sure then. Okay, uh, she Thanks. Sh- certainly was. Thanks. A week later, Mark was released from jail on his two month prison stay, and on the steps of the <sighs> boy, on the steps of the prison, he was promptly charged with the murder of George Harry Stores and placed her right back into custody.
1: Here we go again.
0: It was October 24th, nearly a year after the death of George Harry Stores, that the trial of Mark Wilde finally began. The prosecution gave a powerful opening statement that I'll quote in part here. When these witnesses are called, they will no doubt be cross-examined, and very properly, as to whether they did not identify on a previous occasion another man as being the man who they saw at Gorse Hall. They undoubtedly did so, and, as I am instructed, the explanation is that there is now, and was at the time of Cornelius Howard's arrest, a great similarity between him and the man who now stands before you. I understand that similarity is not so striking now as it was at the time when Cornelius Howard was arrested, as time has passed and Howard has put on flesh. If you are satisfied that there was a striking resemblance between Howard and the prisoner, it establishes this. That it was some person of that appearance, some person of that likeness who committed the murder. That one of these persons committed the murder. And of these persons, one has proved an alibi.
1: I mean, fair-haired, skinny, short guys, it's like every other dude in England at the time, no? <laughs> I mean, what do you mean?
0: But, but, but you, you see what he's trying to do, right? He's going, well, yeah, I, we, of course. we know the suspect looks like this guy. Uh, the prosecutor drew attention to the Rifle cartridges that had been found at Wilde's home. Um, Several military-style rifle cartridges cut in half. Hmm. And if you remember, a very similar cartridge to that was stuffed into the useless revolver, Mm -hmm. maybe to make it look functional. Okay. Also, the fact that Mark Wilde had admitted to owning and ditching two revolvers, (sighs) one of which was apparently very similar to the one used at Gorse Hall, and his use of a knife in a different crime. The ladies of Fairhaven were called into the box next. They gave their positive identification of Mark Wild, and of course, in cross-examination, the defense questioned them about their previous identification of another guy. And um, Mrs. Stores ended up having what one reporter called yet another fainting fit.
1: She's been through a lot.
0: <laughs> but the press has had enough, apparently. <sighs> judgy yeah really um then the three servicemen who had served with mark wilde came up and so did the gunsmith who had looked at the gun previously and all four of them testified pretty damningly that they police had mark's broken revolver but then the following day mark wilde's mother was called and she was actually a star witness for the defense She offered a detailed, if embarrassing, alibi for September 10th, where Mark had indeed had a big fight with his dad and said he wasn't going back to that stupid job anymore, and then he stormed off to the pub, and then his mother went and found him at the pub and brought him home, and then he stormed off to the pub again, and she went and met him outside the pub at 1130 when it closed and tried to get him to come home, and he stormed off again.
1: It's got to be true. This story's too embarrassing.
0: It's so embarrassing. Why would he bring this to the stand? Mm -hmm. She said the dark marks on his face that his friend had referred to were from an abscess that Mark had brought home from the army that had to be lanced in February of 1910. Saying
1: brought home from the army sounds like it's in his little suitcase.
0: Yeah, I understand. (laughs) But it, it does mean that at the time of the murder... According to his mom, at least, Mark had a stinking, open, running wound on his face.
1: Well, did any of his military friends remember him having a stinking, open, running wound when he left? No one
0: testified to this abscess except So they, his rem- they mom.
1: they remember the gun almost too perfectly, but they don't remember his face literally rotting.
0: Anyway, that's what his mom said.
1: Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm sure she was a nice lady, but she certainly had
0: reason to say what she did on the stand if it wasn't true. And Mark did have a scar on his face that apparently wasn't there before he went into the military. But anyway. His mother also said Mark's gun didn't have a ring at the end. And she very conveniently said, "Um, oh, and also I found this and reached into her pocket on the witness stand and pulled out a piece of a revolver, like a like a chamber, the circular mm-hmm. chamber part, the cylinder. Um, And she said, oh, that's right. I forgot to tell you all this, but I found this in Mark's khakis.
1: Oh, boy. Okay.
0: She said, you know, because I remember those guns he had. I hated them. And I was so relieved when he finally got rid of them in November. Mm -hmm. So everything she was supposed to say. Mm -hmm. Next was Mark's cousin, Thomas Lockwood, who said that he had lived with the Wilds in 1909. And he said he remembered seeing the revolvers. He remembered one having a dummy chart cartridge in a chamber. And he said they were still in the house at least a week after the store's murder until Mark's mom complained about them enough and he finally got rid of them. Hmm. These, th- 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 Those were prosecution witnesses for some reason. I think the prosecution was hoping to trip them up.
1: The mother was a prosecution witness? Yeah. That's not smart.
0: Major backfire. Yeah, wow. But it was the defense's turn now. And once again, this is the same lawyer, by the way, and he was the
1: first. It's the same lawyer? Yeah. And and did he skip the opening arguments again and bring Mark to the stand?
0: He called Mark directly to oh, the stand. Yeah. He's got a tactic. It yep. worked the first time, I guess. Unlike Howard, uh, Wilde was well rehearsed. Maybe too much because he apparently was well rehearsed to the point that sometimes he would start answering questions before the attorney finished answering them. Mm-hmm. Um, But they got through all the functional parts of his story. He explained the fight with his dad and the trips back and forth to the pub with his mom telling him to come home. He explained his intention to go to the concert at the Hippodrome, the pub fight diversion, uh, and finally explaining the blood to his mom on November 1st. Um, He claimed police impropriety. He said that all the other guys in the Nutsford jail lineup were, quote, of a different stamp. What does that mean? Just a bunch of guys who didn't look like him. Like it was a bunch of t- like he. Uh, oh,
1: so they like purposefully stacked it with like tall brunettes.
0: Yeah, like a bunch of tall brunettes, and then and then one skinny light haired guy. Mm-hmm. And Mark also said the American Bullock wasn't his. He had had a five chambered revolver, but it, his was nickel plated and had black handles, um, and it was broken, but it wasn't this gun.
1: Well, Mark, you know where you disposed of it, so if you could just find that, that would be great. He
0: says he told the police where uh, he, he, got, he got rid of it. Mm. Now, Kate Kenworthy, who's a lady friend of Mark Wilde's, was called to the witness stand by the Ooh, defense.
1: Kate Kenworthy. She sounds like a girlfriend for Superman.
0: Well, she's a girlfriend for Mark Wilde, who you can make your own determination as to whether he's Superman. A little different. She said she saw Mark four or five times on September 10th. Not in person, but from a distance. She said the first time he was walking into the Astley Arms pub. And then the second time he was outside the pub arguing with his mom. And then the third time he was sitting on the pavement a little after 11.30, talking to his mom outside the pub. Where is she
1: that she's seeing all of
0: this? Down the road. She didn't want to embarrass him by walking up to him. Okay. In the end of this one, The jury only deliberated for 50 minutes, longer than corny, but not very long, before they came back with a not guilty verdict. And there you have it. Two men tried, two men acquitted, for the same crime, for what I believe, don't nail me to the wall, listener, what I believe is the first time in British history. Hmm.
1: Well, uh, hmm. I feel like Mark is more likely to have done it just with the circumstantial evidence we have. I think he has less obvious motive.
0: I agree. We haven't heard a single history
1: with crime aside from one very bad
0: month for him, it seems. We we haven't heard a single reason why he might have wanted George Harry Storrs dead or even that he would have known him.
1: Yeah, so, gosh, I, I don't know. I, I Again, I don't think I could vote guilty because there's not enough hard evidence, but I think he's more likely than corny.
0: Now, there are some big lingering questions that Jonathan Goodman addresses once he gets through these two trials. And I think they're big lingering questions we still have to address, too. So first, what the fuck is up with <laughs> the windowpane breaking incident of September 10th?
1: Yeah. Was it related? Was it just some random BS? It seems crazy that it could be random BS, but
0: I don't know. The world is a random place. Here's some great questions John Goodman raises. Mm-hmm. Not John Goodman from Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Ugh, um, my boy. So the window shatters and a gun barrel points through and George runs toward the gun and pulls down the blinds. Why does he do that? People have
1: weird reactions to things. He could have, I don't know about the pulling down the blinds, but it could have been just his like monkey brain thing of like, we need to get this out of here. He could shoot in here and hurt someone.
0: Mm -hmm. And then after he puts the blind, the shade down, they hear two gunshots and the unarmed George wants to rush out of the house to see what's going on.
1: Again, it's not that crazy to me. I mean, you want to know what's
0: happening, who it is. It's a little strange. And then there's the fact that there's no effect from the gunshots. No yeah,
1: holes. It seems like he probably just shot into the
0: air or something. Mm-hmm. But why did this person... So, so
1: I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you. But I think both in grief and in fear, people act contrary to what we might expect. Right. But was the person trying to murder him? I have no idea what this person was trying to do. I think it seems like at least try to scare him.
0: Probably not trying to rob him, right? Coming in at dinner time and bashing a gun through the window.
1: Right, but then what was what was the motive? The second time seems like it could have been robbery, but then like why do it while there's a bunch of people there, very obviously in the house? Why do they yell? I have you now. <sighs> I don't know. It seems like there's a piece missing.
0: There is definitely a piece missing, and I have several more pieces to give you. Oh. Let's get through our questions first. There are some problems with Cornelius, right? His alibi feels pretty produced.
1: Yeah, he's in jail for the gun window thing, if that's part of it.
0: Yes. Well, yes. So if you want to point the finger at Cornelius, he has to not be involved in the gun thing. Um, at I- least physically. John Goodman did some math and some investigation and found that Howard could have caught an 8:12 train from Huddersfield and been at Gorse Hall by 9 o'clock p.m. So the the travel times would have worked out for him, even though he was staying at this other um, boarding house. Mm -hmm. But he would need to have lied about the. um, The Domino's game.
1: Or he just played it the next night when other people thought it was played.
0: Right. But yes, but in that case, he's lying. And so is that that landlord.
1: Or he's just mistaken.
0: Yeah. God. Uh, Now, Mark Wilde. Two of those guys who identified his gun by name were friends of his when he was in the military.
1: And it was his friend who identified him in the first place walking down the street.
0: Um, With friends like these. The gun disposal thing is unavoidably weird. Yes. The mysterious man he fought never materialized. He didn't have a name for that guy. Police never saw that guy. Track that guy down. That guy's a ghost. Uh, fought in like a pub. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the night of the murder. No, well, that, that's but not too crazy. You're not going to find People that are guy getting
1: right. in fights in pubs every night.
0: It sounds like Mark Wilde is, yeah. <laughs> he just happens to miss work and lose his job the night of the window breaking incident. Weird coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to motive cause you're right. There just wasn't, I mean, it could
1: be larceny, right? It could be that he wanted to rob the place, but he doesn't have the history that corny does mm. in crime and robbery. And again, I mean, both of them as criminals, uh, because Mark did commit an assault, they don't seem like the smartest criminals they're not covering their tracks well so it could have just been a situation where he would be stupidly tried to rob a place when everyone was home
0: um but it's not the best strategy carrie what if i told you this on behalf of mr john goodman the author of our source book this week Mm -hmm. you remember kate kenworthy Mm-hmm. Mark's uh, lady friend. Mm-hmm. Um, she used to be Mark's kind of committed girlfriend, and and they used to live quite close to one another. But Kate Kenworthy had had to move to Oldham, one of the nearby towns, um, because in August of 1909, she was fired by George Harry Stores personally for being a quote troublemaker. Oh. She had moved in with Mark for a few weeks, and he had supported her, but then his money ran out, and she had to move away to find another job.
1: Okay, so maybe a a touch of revenge?
0: Maybe a touch of revenge, or maybe something that was supposed to be, give me my fucking girlfriend or job back.
1: She's a troublemaker. There's no more detail on that?
0: No more detail. Although some rife speculation from Julian Fellows in a minute. Oh, the very same. The very same. That's right. You didn't know Julian Fellows was getting involved in this, but he will. <laughs> now, also according to Jonathan Goodman, and this is one of those things that you just see in a true crime book, sometimes you have to accept it. He doesn't give us a name, but he, Jonathan Goodman says that an old man died in Staley Bridge in the 70s who had been Mark's who had been Mark Wilde's friend in 1909. Very old guy. And Goodman says that shortly before his death, this man told his stepson, I'm Dan Cooper. Very similar, it's that vibe. (laughs) That on the night of November 1st, his friend Mark Wilde had come to his house. His face had been even paler than usual and his hands and clothes were stained with blood. He said he had killed Mr. Stores and he asked his friend to help him get the stains out. And the man said that he did and then hadn't spoken of it again for over 60 years.
1: The prosecution didn't put together the the Kate Kenworthy thing. No. It was 1910. I know, but she she's in the trial. She's a witness. I
0: know. It's really bold of the... They didn't
1: say, hey... Did you know the guy that got murdered?
0: If she's the motive, then it's also really bold of the defense to put her on the stand. Yeah. And um, I should tell you, Carrie, that Jonathan Goodman, Mark Wilde isn't his favorite suspect. Uh, Okay. Because we've saved the most tantalizing twists for last. Twist it up. Carrie, do you remember Robert Innes? He was uh, George Harry Storrs' lawyer and maybe his only friend apart from James Worrell. Um, He had met his wife through this lawyer. Yes. Well, in 1897, Robert Innes' wife had asked George to help them find a governess to watch their kids. And in October, they hired 23-year-old Maria Hull. Um, They hired her at 60 pounds a year plus room and board. She was sometimes referred... 60
1: pounds a year?
0: 60 pounds a year, yes. In 1897. I know, but Jesus. (laughs) Well, it's plus room and board.
1: (laughs) Well, I assume her room and board are covered.
0: Because she lives at the house. Uh, She was apparently sometimes called the German governess by family and friends. But she was actually Swiss. and (laughs) And she's described as a beautiful blonde woman. Mm. Um, and smart, but but uh, her beauty was commented on by everyone. George and Maria, by all accounts, formed a fast friendship. Mm. And George became an even more frequent visitor to the Innes house for dinner, and he apparently liked practicing his German with Maria at the table. By 1905, George and Maria were sometimes seen walking in the park alone together.
1: Oh, that's... I mean, why Why would you hang out with your friend's governess? In
0: 1905 mm-hmm. alone? Mm-hmm. Honey.
1: Walking in the park, that's, that's pretty bold. I mean, you're in public. People are going to see you.
0: Now, by 1906, the Innes's oldest daughter had been sent to finishing school, and with less to do with the children around the house, Maria was sent to Oxford to pursue English and literature but she apparently dropped out just eight months later without taking her exam, and she came home again. And Goodman notes cryptically that some would later say "Hole had put on weight when she returned from her brief stay at Oxford. Do you see where we're going with this?
1: I do. I do.
0: Said Emma Innes of that time. She was depressed. Her dissatisfaction and humility were only spoken to me alone, but... She said she felt herself very unworthy. That was a word she frequently used. Hmm. On February 1st, Maria went to her own church, which was about 30 miles away, um, and refused to take communion because she said she was unworthy.
1: Because she was with child?
0: I don't know. Instead of uh, comforting her, the, that minister would later send her a letter saying, well, if she, doesn't feel, if she didn't feel worthy of taking communion at her own church, she shouldn't bother joining her employers at their church on Sunday.
1: Damn.
0: Um, it sounds like her only source of comfort. We don't have any evidence of her meeting up with George Storrs during this time. Um, it seems like her major source of comfort was Emma Innes, her employer, who said she consoled her and held her, quote, like an invalid. Um, basically every day. Wow. On Wednesday, February 6th, Maria had high tea with the Inneses, put their youngest daughter to bed, and Emma Innes passed her on the stairs on the way down. Around nine o'clock, Emma heard a, a click from the letter slot in the door downstairs and went down and found an envelope with her name on it. It said, do not expect me back tonight. Nobody is to blame, only myself. It is heartrending to leave you all. Console my poor parents. Hearty thanks for a miserable sinner. Aww. Emma found a policeman outside and a search started immediately, but nothing was found for three weeks. And Maria was finally found floating February 27th near <sighs> Bannerman Mill.
1: Was she with child?
0: Um, she was not. There were lots of letters found among her possessions. They were in German. and It doesn't seem like anyone ever bothered to uh, translate them. I guess that would have been prying anyway. But from a few lines in English, uh, police noted down, we have, I feel a disgrace to all my friends and to this house and to all who know me. Mm -hmm. Police decided this was some kind of a religious mania that was to blame. Um, Emma, her boss, thought she had overworked herself. And that she felt shame over dropping out of that program at Oxford. I don't know.
1: Well, rich people could arrange abortions back in the day. They could. And someone who's very religious might feel guilt if they felt pressured to have one.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And here is where Goodman ties it back around into his theory of George Harry Storrs' murder. I mean, you see what his theory is to this point, right? Um, yeah. George, Harry, and Maria had had some kind of an affair. She had been with child, had left to either have an abortion or have the baby and um, give it away. Mm-hmm. Came back. Her relationship seems to be gone. The baby's gone. She um, probably was religious. A lot, of people, a lot of people were back then and probably felt shame in that way. Mm-hmm. And oh, there you go. Girl. But then her family, John Goodman says, Jonathan Goodman says it was it could have been Maria Hall's family who, for example, came to bury their daughter, asked around town about what had been going on with her, and maybe caught wind of the rumors that George Harry Stores could be to blame for their daughter's plight. Well, did
1: she have like a small blonde brother?
0: Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's exactly who Julian Fellows landed on as his suspect when he investigated this case.
1: Now, explain who Julian Fellows is to some of the non-nerds in the audience.
0: All right, so Julian Fellows is a British um, personality. Yeah, personality. <laughs> uh, film producer, director. Yeah, producer. Mm-hmm. Did he direct Godf- Gosford Park? I
1: I don't know. Think he wrote I think it. he wrote
0: it. Okay. So he's a screenwriter and producer, and uh, he, was, he became very well known after his um, period murder drama, Gosford Park, uh, won an Oscar or two back in like 2000-something? I
1: think it was just like 2000, 2001.
0: 2000, 2001. Um, in 2010, his next big, big, big hit, the thing that really vaulted him to fame probably is Downton Abbey. But in between, in 2005, he did have a big enough name in the UK to have a whole show on BBC called Julian Fellows Investigates. And uh,
1: just in case we have any listeners who love Downton Abbey and the works of Julian Fellows or just British culture. Oh, Lords uh, of
0: Grantham, please. Yes,
1: our friends uh, host the Lords of Grantham podcast where they go through Downton Abbey and The Crown and all those kinds of shows.
0: Um, They love a period uh, drama.
1: Yes, they do. And,
0: well, whether they love it or not, two they're, guys, stuck watching it now. they're two guys.
1: They're two guys you you would not assume love period dramas. So. It's an
0: incredibly fun show. I recommend you give it a listen. Mm-hmm. But Julian covered this case in his one five episode season in two thousand five. Julian
1: Fellows investigates.
0: It's a very interesting show because he arranges these five famous unsolved murders as like docudramas, and he'll even walk into frame he narrates the whole show Mm -hmm. what george harry stores couldn't have known you know it's all that but he'll literally walk into a scene like the family leaves and the background gets out of focus and then out walks julian fellows into the foreground of their parlor to go like
1: so it's like alfred hitchcock like walking into a a crime reenactment on discovery id
0: lost in the tawdry side of love what was a maria hole meant to do Mm. you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. he at one point leans over the banister with the murder weapon (laughs) just to go hello (laughs) um it's an interesting it's an interesting show i don't know how much police work or like investigation is really involved i I think it's julian fellows just sipping that tea
1: well there was a very similar show um who james elroy i think is the writer of la confidential the book and they had like a, a crime true crime show about like hollywood and la murders that he hosted so it's it's a very popular thing to be like well he likes crazy stuff um john jonathan john waters the uh the director and um my my uncle, I would hope, uh, in spirit, he did a show called Who the Fuck Did I Marry?" Hmm. Who the bleep did I marry? Uh, he started the show. I think it, it may even still be going on, but it's the same sort of vibe. They bring in these people that are associated with these kinds of genres and and let them loose on crimes.
0: Um. So Julian Fellows likes the Maria Hall whole family angle, um, which is where. Jonathan Goodman lands as the most likely thing in his book. Um, Fellows likes it to the point that he fabricates a lot of elements of the story, including threatening letters addressed to George Harry stores that he's been finding, uh, saying things like, we know.
1: Oh, but that never happened. That never... Wouldn't it be crazy if it did
0: happen? Well, Fellows didn't make it up. It is something that Goodman suggests, Mm. but there's no... Goodman's suggestion is that George Harry Stores might have gotten these threatening letters from whoever was planning to do the crime, mm-hmm. and that would explain...
1: His sort of hysteria with the bell and everything, but he couldn't tell his family about it.
0: Right, he would have only, in Goodman's imagination, he would have only told James Worrell, and of course James Worrell goes just a couple days after Stores, so we don't hear from him. Mm-hmm. The letters are a huge leap, but what I do like is that it brings in the September 10th thing as a ploy on George Harry Stores's part to try to generate police concern about something he can't share with anyone. Mm.
1: Oh, okay, that's interesting.
0: So now, instead of whatever that was supposed to be, you've got James Worrell just cracking open the window, firing a couple shots in the air. George rushes over to the window because he knows he's not in real danger but has to act scared for the ladies. Mm -hmm. And now they have a pretext to tell the police, oh, get the bell up there. That's interesting. So that's Goodman's idea on that. It is a lot. I mean, you have to go a couple steps out of the way for it. Mm -hmm. Now, Fellows says, because at the beginning of the episode, he wants to paint everyone as a potential suspect, you know? Mm -hmm. So he goes, his wife Maggie Storrs looked every bit to the grieving widow. But what was the true story inside her marriage? Mm. He tries to paint them as having like this marriage that's completely falling apart. I don't see any evidence of that, because George seemed to only be asking for his wife, and his wife seems to have been basically catatonic for a year after he died. Yeah. Fellows points out that James Storrs took the news of his brother's death in stride. That's a good one. And he raises the possibility that maybe he hired an assassin, but then he immediately goes.
1: But well, James doesn't oh, maybe strike not. me as
0: that kind of man. Oh, okay, Julian. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, and then he says, with evidence that I can't find, I can't find anything to support this. But Fellows says that Robert Innes and his wife had a falling out with George Stores a few months before his death, which falls in very nicely with the whole Maria Hall. But there's no, like, evidence. It's not in Goodman's book, and that's the only source that, <sighs> that I can bite on this. So. Okay. Fellows also invents an encounter with Cornelius Howard, where he meets the family and asks George for a job, and George says, No, go, you gotta work for a living. Get out of here. Stop asking for handouts. Which, once again, is inventing a motive where mm-hmm. there isn't one. A- a- the women of the house explicitly didn't remember Corny Howard, so. Yeah fellows then fleshes out this whole first emotional and then physical affair with maria hall and he he has mark wilde and kate kenworthy necking in george harry's old favorite spot with with maria and so george chases them off and fires kate for being a, a slattern and a troublemaker
1: Uh, i mean it's it's very much a screenwriter being like and guess who was there
0: the other guy and then mark wilde comes to the house that night and threatens to kill him so you've got you know truly all the all the motives are are flying around there all the suspects are more intense in this version um but the truth for julian fellows is that maria got pregnant went to oxford for eight months to give birth and then give the baby up for adoption he suspects George Harry knew nothing of the child until he heard of Maria's death, and uh, chalks the suicide up to postpartum depression, religious guilt, lost love, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Pick your reasons.
1: Now, Sean, I don't
0: want Julian Fellows tells us that Maria Hall had a younger brother named John Hall, who she seems to have written a lot of letters back and forth with, and that's it. That's all he has to go on, and he goes, "I think that is the most likely oh. culprit." Okay. Um for me, Mark Wilde is the most likely culprit. Sean, I don't want to
1: tarnish a possibly good man's name any further with with tawdry rumor. You're talking about Mr. Fellows? No, Mr. Stores. Because we don't have proof of any of this, I right? Agree. We don't know we don't know he's a womanizer or he impregnated anyone. But let's say he, he was. Uh-huh put this in your pipe and smoke it. What if he kind of did this a few times and one of the times was with his worker Kate Kenworthy and either she was getting too attached or she got pregnant and and he had to take care of her or whatever and and he he got rid of her for being a quote-unquote troublemaker because he had to get just she couldn't be around anymore. The only- and Mark Wilde took revenge because of that.
0: Not because of the firing, but because of the, the relationship. The whole...
1: Yes. Because yeah. what if he had a history of doing this kind of thing?
0: Sure. What if he What if he did? Well, one... Goodman doesn't raise that, but he... Because I, I, for me, I don't know if a good way to get rid of a, a poor relationship choice is to fire the person and then send them to the very next town over.
1: Well, if you're... A boss and you have an affair with your worker and you have to get rid of them the, the best you could do is just fire them
0: yeah but isn't she just gonna come tell his wife and all that stuff I don't know that's what you would think I don't know um
1: why didn't Maria if that was the case
0: well cause she was a sweet, a sweet sweet woman
1: maybe Kate was too
0: I think Marie was just going to Oxford. I think that I think these theories make too much like hay over like oh, and a woman was going to Oxford. What do you mean? And for eight months, like maybe she went to Oxford and it sucked because uh, it was because people didn't like having women there. Well, and- do
1: we have any proof she actually attended the school?
0: No, of course not.
1: So maybe she just went to Oxford, the place, not the university. She said she was studying
0: English and literature.
1: Do we have any proof of that? No, so she could have just as well have had a baby we don't know
0: yeah julian fellows says uh, well abortions obviously existed back then um they would have been unsafe enough and illegal enough that um it's more likely that a family with the means like the innises would have sent her to go give the baby away
1: and she could have been guilty about that too maybe she wanted to keep the baby maybe there was no baby
0: Yep, and so that's how Julian Fellows... That's how, well, Goodman ends up with just a member of the Hull family, unnamed. Julian Fellows takes the step further of pointing a finger at this otherwise totally innocent man, Mm -hmm. John Hull.
1: Who we know nothing else about. He shows us a picture. (laughs) Great.
0: Um, And that is it Carrie that's all we have on the murder of George Harry stores oh God. but my favorite one is Mark Wild I think I think it's probably for the best that both of these guys got off because I think there is reasonable doubt in both of these yes there's too
1: much reasonable doubt for me to be comfortable with either of them going away for murder even though, yeah, I think Mark Wilde is more likely just based on the the weird gun stuff and all of the weird pieces.
0: You, you know what's funny? Jonathan Goodman says basically the opposite of what I said. He says he's pretty sure it was a member. He thinks the most likely thing is a, a member of Maria Hall's family, but he wishes <laughs> he, he, he wouldn't mind if both uh, Cornelius and Wilde had swung for it.
1: Well, that's wild. Which
0: seems like a crazy thing to say <laughs> <Yes>. to me. Yes. <laughs> Yes. She's <laughs> like, you know, I just like hangings. <sighs> Brother. So that's the story of uh, the murder of George Harry Storrs, Carrie. It took us a long time to get through it. Well, there are a lot
1: of pieces and, and suspects and strange characters.
0: Are you glad you know this story?
1: I am. It's a very interesting story that I had no knowledge of before. And I always like learning new stories. I wish it wasn't unsolved. Because that's unsatisfying, but um, yeah, fascinating story. Thank you, Sean. How about that you, tea at
0: the end, Carrie?
1: Oh, my God. You just poured that all over the place. We throw
0: secret baby in in the last five minutes? Mm. Julian Fellows. God damn it. Who's missing this podcast? Gotta love them. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do, too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast.
1: Thank you and stay spooky. Let's take a trip to the Bazaar Bazaar.
0: All right, we, uh, we brought in a late suicide in that narrative, so so I hope this isn't too deep and dark on this one, Carrie.
1: Oh, no, this is light and fluffy. This week, we share two tales of larceny. Oh, This is a crime. In Washington State, the 7th Annual Squatch Fest was, yes! was going great until it was discovered that the mascot of the fest, an inflatable Bigfoot, had been stolen by some unknown dastardly devil. Around... Oh.
0: Oh wait! From the festival? Yes. Oh, I thought the organizers had stolen it.
1: No. Around 3,000 people from all around the world uh, attended the two-day Sasquatch celebration, which featured food carts and dozens of vendors, along
0: with the blow-up Bigfoot. You know, in a world where Sasquatch Fest exists, I think it's criminal
1: that we haven't attended. Me too.
0: No, that SantaCon is able to compete.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. As written by the Kelso Longview Chamber of Commerce on Facebook, quote, Our friendly Sasquatch was stolen tonight as we were helping our speakers and vendors tear down after Squatch Fest. If you have any information, please contact the Longview Police Department at 360-442-5800. As far as we know... There are no leads on the perpetrator, though there are surveillance cameras in the area that may have caught the Squatch smuggler in the act.
0: Okay, we're going to have to check back on this This is a very serious story. Mm -hmm.
1: Meanwhile, the search is on for a, quote, sizable Shrek statue stolen from a Hatfield, Massachusetts resident's property, said to weigh 200 pounds of solid concrete. That's uh, A, too
0: much concrete, and B, it sounds like it's actually kind of a small Shrek
1: 200 pounds of concrete. The Hatfield Police Department reported on their Facebook page that, quote, the dragon sculpture he lives with is frustrated and lonely.
0: Now, donkey, that means he's stealing Donkey's (laughs) girl.
1: Yeah, I guess so. And have asked anyone with information on the whereabouts of the Shrek sculpture to reach out to the department at 413 247 0323, quote, or return him in the condition you found him, they added. We can only hope that Squatch and Shrek are brought back to their rightful homes promptly.
0: Or maybe they're living happily together.
1: And John, on our desktop, there is uh, images. there are images of the, the Squatch and the Shrek just for your own edification.
0: Oh, if I'm being honest, you can keep the Shrek statue.
1: I think the, the resident probably made the statue themselves, and so it is a, a, an artistic piece and should be returned.
0: The Squatch is nice, though.
1: Okay. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at Scary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
0: We sure will, and we are especially grateful to our top-tier patrons. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Great Hell Heist on Saturday, Jared Chamberlain, (laughs) Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, Haley, and our newest patron, Aussie Sean Dance. Oh, that's better, I think. It's definitely better. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
1: Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs>